Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 708 for the 28th of August, 2020. This week, if you've ever bought a piece of hardware that didn't quite live up to its hype and its reviews, you're not alone. I have a story for you that involves sequential failures to satisfy. Perhaps it'll be worth a chuckle or two. In short circuits, Microsoft has added a security function in version 2004 of Windows 10 to identify and block potentially unwanted programs, but it has a serious shortcoming. If you're still running an earlier version of Windows and wish Microsoft would get around to pushing the 2004 update out to your computer, you can obtain it without Microsoft's help. In spare parts only on the website, too many people fail to recognize scam ads and blindly share the ad or follow the link. Let's think about that. One of the worst performing business sectors in terms of online security awareness is one that encompasses energy and utility. That's bad news. And 20 years ago, Corral thought that Linux would allow the company to compete with Microsoft. This is a little story that's all about me. But it does reveal a problem that might haunt you, too, even if you're careful. Despite caution when buying hardware, the result isn't always ideal. It's easy to misread reviews and specifications, but it's also possible to gather bad information from these sources. My 25-month-old Netgear R9000 router started misbehaving in July. I wasn't sure how long Netgear's warranty period is, but what I found when I visited the company's website wasn't encouraging. It showed my router's serial number, and below the serial number were these words. Hardware warranty. Expired. Phone support. Expired. Email support. Expired. Chat support. Expired. Power supply warranty. Expired. Accessories warranty. Expired. Now, it did offer a service contract, and if I wanted to get it fixed, I'd have to buy one. That would cost $230. And that would also mean that I'd have to send the router in for service and wait for its return, all the while being unable to connect more than one computer to the Internet at a time. Both my wife and I need Internet access, and we need the access simultaneously, so sending the router in for service would never do. Even if I wanted to spend $230 for a service contract, which I didn't. Looking at my purchase records, I found that a Netgear router I had bought in 2014 lasted a little more than four years before it failed. So I decided not to buy another Netgear router and instead identified a Linksys MaxStream AC3000 Tri-Band Mesh Wi-Fi 5 router. That's a mouthful. $258. I drove to the store, picked it up, brought it home, and installed it. Problem solved, I thought, 
and everything went well until I plugged in the external USB drive that I use for network attached storage. The router immediately told me that it recognized the drive, well that's good, but that it couldn't use it. Not so good. Why? Well, because although Linksys installs a USB port on the device, it doesn't support a hard disk. Maybe it supports a printer. I don't know, and I didn't try to find out because the printer itself is attached to an Ethernet port. The router's interface page did offer a link to the Linksys website where I learned that the MR9000X has no USB functions for disk drives. None. Online spec sheets and other resources explicitly called out the USB port on this router, and there were even published reviews that described the router's robust USB 3 port and how it could be used with an external disk drive to create network-attached storage. Well, it has been about 20 years since I have owned any Linksys gear, and now it'll probably be another 20 years before I consider Linksys again. Now, to be fair to Linksys, I do have to say that the installation process is the best I have ever seen for people who are unfamiliar with installing a router. It uses a phone-based app that walks the user through the process with a single question or action on each screen. The setup took about the same amount of time it would have taken if I had done it manually, and it structured the task in a way that anyone would be able to use it, regardless of technical knowledge. If only Linksys had been equally forthcoming about the limited functionality of that USB 3 port. So I took the Linksys router back and paid an extra $54 to purchase a TP-Link Archer AX6000 router. This was the replacement replacement router. Setting up a router is something that's really not very complicated. I had even downloaded the router's manual first to confirm that the USB 3 port would support an external drive, so I expected the setup process to take maybe 15 minutes, half an hour at the most. Two hours later, I still didn't have a network connection. Now, this wasn't entirely the fault of the router. Somehow the cable modem had become a little bit confused, and it was returning an IP address of 0.0.0.0. Once I got that resolved, the rest of the installation process proceeded normally, once again, until I got to the USB drive. The router recognized the Western Digital Drive and showed all the files and directories on the drive. It even offered to share them. And things were looking good, but pointing a file browser at the network address revealed an empty directory. I could not add a file or a directory in that location. The router's setup page for the network-attached storage drive showed an entry I couldn't change. The entry suggested that there was a folder called G, or maybe it wanted to mount the drive as G. The problem, if it really wanted to mount as drive G, is that I already have a drive G, and several applications depend on it continuing to be drive G. Just to test, I temporarily remapped drive G to another letter, just to see if the network drive would show up as G. It didn't, and that solved at least one mystery. G is really just a directory called G. That suggested that I might be able to connect to tpshare backslash G, and then map it as drive Z. That's the letter I've always used for network shares. Indeed, I could do that, and it seemed the problem was resolved. That would have been the case if I wanted only to read the files from the directory. 
It was impossible to add a file, edit an existing file, or delete a file. The entire folder was read-only. So even though I had performed all the appropriate due diligence, including downloading and reading the relevant parts of the operations manual, the inability to use the network-attached storage drive was a fatal error. The manual didn't say that the network-attached storage drive would be read-only, but it also didn't claim that the drive could be written to. Well, by then I had spent another hour on a chat session with a TP-Link support technician who seemed to think that it should work, but wasn't able to explain how. My question bubbled quickly up to a senior technician, who referred me to an explanatory page on the company's website. The control panel for the router should have displayed an access authentication button that, when turned on, would have opened a function where the user access could be enabled. That button, and one labeled Enable Media Sharing, were not present in the router's control panel. Had they been, finishing the setup would have been quick and easy. And the senior technician said that my screenshot that showed the absence of those two controls was really odd. Replacing a router isn't supposed to be something that takes several days. Fortunately, I had completed several projects ahead of schedule, and my wife had two days of vacation, so I could devote two days to solving a problem that I didn't want to spend time on. That meant I had to ignore the cat, and she was quite put out by that. My wife and I could have continued to work normally because neither of us depends on the network drive for daily work, and the Wi-Fi part of the router was working great. TP-Link did offer online support, but the company's headquarters is in Shenzhen, Guangdong, China. Despite having a U.S. presence in San Jose, the company's support seems to be offered only from China, and the technician I would have worked with works from 900 to 1800 in a time zone that is UTC plus 8. In other words, 12 hours ahead of my eastern time zone, so he'd be available from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. my time. In short, we never really made direct connections, but we did exchange a bunch of email messages, and the technician confirmed that every unit he has tested worked as expected. So then it looked like it was time for the replacement, replacement, replacement router. The Netgear R9000 router did everything I needed it to do, so I bought a new one and thought that setting it up would be a quick and easy Saturday morning job. Two hours into that easy Saturday morning job, it was still no-go. Netgear's setup process is handled by a phone-based app. That seems to be the norm these days. But the app could not see the router. It instructed me to open the phone's control panel and manually connect to the router. When I did that, I found that the phone was already connected to the router. Well, if the app can't see the router... Maybe I could still connect via the router's IP address from the computer that's connected via an Ethernet cable. Nope, the computer couldn't reach 192.168.0.1 or 192.168.1.1. However, 192.168.1.1, which seems to be Netgear's default router location, did launch a Netgear information page. That page told me I should connect to the Internet to use RouterLogin.net. Perhaps you already see the logic flaw here. If the router can't reach the Internet, I cannot connect to RouterLogin.net. So setting up the router seemed 
impossible, but I continued to tinker with it until late in the morning. Part of the tinkering involved trying to find a phone number for Netgear support, but all I could find was a website that I connected to using the phone. That worked about as well as the router did. After giving the website the router's serial number, the option to proceed was grayed out. If I wanted to proceed, I would have to register the router. So that seemed like a good place to end that particular exercise. Another defective router, another return. Consistency was not my friend here. So I decided to try another TP-Link Archer A6000 router, because overall I liked the way that it works. So now we're up to the replacement, 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 replacement router. Now keep in mind here, the senior technician in China seemed to be certain that the problem with the read-write permissions on the USB drive was simply the result of a defective unit. I asked both TP-Link and Micro Center if there was a way that the router's operation with a USB drive could be confirmed before I brought it home. My concern was that Micro Center's stock might have all been from the same batch, and all of the routers might have the same undiagnosed problem. After all, many router users probably don't attach a USB drive, so the problem could go unnoticed until somebody needs to attach one. Microsoft was willing to work with me, but I eventually decided not to bother them with a problem that was not of their making. Another week's worth of back and forth with a very helpful TP-Link technician named Aaron, who's in China, and a useless response from a Western Digital technician named Anna, who responded as if she hadn't read my explanation of the problem at all, convinced me to scrap the network-attached storage drive idea. Not the drive, just the idea. And that, finally, brings me to the final solution. The USB drive is now attached directly to my computer as an external USB drive. It mounts as Drive M, and I have it shared on the local network. That solution provides about 90% of the functionality that I had with a network-attached drive. What's missing is the ability to access that drive when the primary computer is turned off. Another alternative, and one that I might consider later, would be to connect all of the directories I want on the network drive to Google Drive. That would allow the files to be available on all computers at all times, and also ensure that all changes made on another computer would be reported back to the primary computer. Although the final solution is annoying and more than a little disappointing, it's better than spending another few days or weeks trying to solve a problem that appears to have no straightforward solution. That caused me to remember the gambler that Kenny Rogers sang about, and knowing when to hold him, knowing when to fold him, and knowing when to walk away. For me, it was time to walk away. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat.
In short circuits, whether you call them potentially unwanted programs or potentially unwanted applications, they are annoying and some are dangerous. Some browsers attempt to block these annoyances, but Microsoft's latest Windows 10 update aims to put the protection at the operating system level. Microsoft's new Chromium-based Edge browser has had that capability since March. If you have a new version of the browser, type edge colon forward slash forward slash settings forward slash privacy in the address bar and you'll see the settings. The security section deals with tracking protection and other issues at the top. Scroll all the way to the bottom to find a section labeled block potentially unwanted apps. This is turned off by default and I recommend turning it on. An unwanted app can be safe but annoying, such as changing the browser's default search engine, but it can also be something that installs malware or spyware, or something that installs unwanted so-called security applications that repeatedly tell you there is a problem with your computer. The latter apps, of course, promise to fix the problem, but only after you buy the professional version. They can show ads, track users so that developers can sell their data to advertisers, change browser settings, install security certificates, and even disable security controls. Sometimes unwanted applications are easy to remove, but sometimes they can be next to impossible to uninstall. Having protection at the browser level is helpful if a website attempts to install something you don't want, but it's helpless to protect against an application that tricks users into installing unwanted code or hides the process altogether in a silent installation. The new protections in Windows 10 version 2004 aren't really new. Windows Defender has been able to protect against these rogue applications for a year now, but the function could be enabled only via group policies. That's a feature not available on the Home Edition of Windows 10 and is nearly invisible in the Pro Edition unless you're a system administrator who knows where to look. Starting with version 2004 of Windows that's been rolling out slowly to computers since May, protection against these applications is in Settings, Update and Security, Windows Security, App and Browser Control, Reputation-Based Protection Settings. So you have to drill down quite a long way. If you can't find the option, it's probably because your computer hasn't yet been updated to version 2004. More about that in a moment. If it is present on your computer, you'll see that it's turned off by default. Microsoft recommends turning it on and then enabling both of the options. Block Apps attempts to detect installed potentially unwanted programs and warn users so that the unwanted components can be uninstalled. Block Downloads looks for unwanted applications as they're being downloaded, but it works only with Edge. If Microsoft is going to provide protection at the operating system level, then it should work at the operating system level, not be used to give Microsoft's browser an unfair security advantage. A surprising number of Windows computers are still running version 1909 and haven't been updated to version 2004, even though version 2009's release is right around the corner. Microsoft numbers releases with the last two digits of the year and the two digits of the month that the version was released, so 2004 means April 2020. 
know, and try not to mention that April 2020 really wasn't pushed out until May and possibly still hasn't been pushed out to your computer. If you'd like to fix it, it's quick and easy. I have to insert a standard warning here. Anytime you install a new version of the operating system, manually or automatically, something can go wrong. Make sure your backup is current before starting. That said, version 2004 has been out long enough and is installed on enough computers that the likelihood of something big going wrong is reduced. So start at Settings, System, About, to see which version of Windows is installed. If it's not 2004, it will probably be 1909. If you see 2004, there's nothing more to do. If you don't, the next stop would be Settings, Update, and Security. You might see a coming soon message about version 2004 below the button that you use to check for updates. If you see that and you're tired of waiting, here's how to proceed. Go to Microsoft's version 2004 status page. There is a link to that page from the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. And there you can check for known problems. If any hardware installed in your computer is listed and the issue is not shown as resolved, you should stop and wait for the issue to be resolved before installing the update. All major issues and most minor issues have been resolved by now. So if you decide to proceed, there are two choices for updating. The Windows 10 Update Assistant or the Media Creation Tool. The Media Creation Tool is intended primarily for system administrators who have multiple computers to update. So let's use the Update Assistant. Go to the Download Windows 10 page. You'll find a link to that page on the TechBiter Worldwide website. When you get there, click Update Now. This will download a small file to your computer. When the file finishes downloading, double-click it to launch the updater. When the app opens, click the Update Now button, and the updater will confirm that the computer's CPU, RAM, and disk space are adequate. Assuming they all are, click the Next button. The next screen will ask what you want to do, so select Upgrade This PC Now. The updater will download some more files, and when that process is complete, it will tell you that the computer must be restarted. You can do nothing at all, and the computer will restart in half an hour. Or you can save all open files, close all the applications that are in use, and then click Restart Now. The computer will restart several times during the process, and depending on the speed of your computer, and the process may take 20 minutes or so, or it could take longer, perhaps a lot longer. Patience is a virtue. No restarts or even patience are required for spare parts. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Too many people fail to recognize scam ads and blindly share the ad or follow the link. Let's think about that. One of the worst performing business sectors in terms of online security awareness is the one that encompasses energy and utilities. And 20 years ago, Corel thought that Linux would allow the company to compete with Microsoft. So how'd that work out? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.